welcome to the School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Maryland. We're really excited tonight for our guest and for a great conversation. Um, I'm hoping that you guys will be commenting and giving us uh, good questions. Uh, so yeah, give us some questions. Otherwise, you're you're just stuck with what what we. Uh, ask. Um, I wanted to warn anybody who is commenting, we do have this feature on StreamYard here to kind of project comments, which um, I think would add to the conversation. So I'm hoping that you guys are okay with that. And just be aware that if you're commenting, we might be talking about what you're saying and, and putting it up on the screen. But I'm going to uh, turn it over to Eric uh, to talk about how to participate. Eric. All right. Welcome, everyone. My name is Eric, and I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And we are excited to have Dr. Pfeiffer with us this evening. Uh, some of us have seen him speak a few times, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be part of the school neuropsych program where he was one of our teachers. And he's got a lot of positive information for us about all kinds of things, reading and trauma. So we've got lots of questions for him this evening, and we're excited to just have a conversation with him. So as Rachel mentioned, if you would like to ask questions, participate live, the YouTube link is probably the easiest place to do that. Although you could ask questions on our Facebook page, School Psych Podcast on Facebook or Twitter. And our uh, Twitter page is Podcast Psyched, I believe, uh, on Twitter. So if you would like to comment, please use any one of those formats and we will get your questions or comments to Dr. Pfeiffer uh, this evening. And if you want to rate us or subscribe, like and subscribe, we always forget to ask people to do that. So please feel free, if you're listening on iTunes, rate us. If you are listening on YouTube, like and subscribe. It helps get the word out and keep the podcast going. So we appreciate all that. And I would like to introduce our sub this evening. So if you notice, uh, Rebecca's not here. We have Sue from Sincerely School Psychologist. And we're happy to have her sub for us again. And I will turn it over to Sue. Oh, before I do that, sorry, <laughs> one last thing. We posted on Facebook the other day that uh, we had a rejection letter from NASP for a proposal. And we, we sort of gave a shout out to everyone who puts themselves out there. And we have opportunities to speak and do some presentations. And in this case, we submitted our proposal and NASP said, please submit again next time. And so we sort of gave a little shout out to anyone who's stepped out of their comfort zone to try to do something like that. And we received a ton of love and kind words from all kinds of uh, amazing school psychologists, researchers, and practitioners to say, keep going. And so we wanted to just uh, send that same message. We really weren't looking for sympathy more than just to say, hey, if, if this happens to you guys, um, you know, try again next time because we all are in this to support kids and the things that we learn and share with one another and learn from one another are highly valuable. So, um, so we appreciate all the kindness and love and we will resubmit to NASP uh, for next year. And prior to that, you'll get to see us and Dr. Pfeiffer at NIASP if uh, anyone's attending the New York State Conference. So uh, we'd like to turn it over to Sue and Sue will tell us a little about herself and introduce Dr. Pfeiffer. Hi guys, I'm Sue Warren Priester. I am a school psychologist in Chandler, Arizona, and I do run the Sincerely School Psychologist page. So um, if you ever seen that on your Facebook, that 
I am the face behind the anonymous name. But I am really super excited and honored to introduce Dr. Pfeiffer tonight. Dr. Stephen G. Pfeiffer is an internationally renowned speaker and author in the field of learning disabilities. And he's authored eight books on learning and emotional disorders in children. He has more than 20 years of experience as a school psychologist and is duly certified in school neuropsychology. Dr. Pfeiffer was voted the Maryland School Psychologist of the Year in 2008 and awarded the 2009 National School Psychologist of the Year. He was a recipient of the 2018 Outstanding Contribution to the Education and Training of Psychologists awarded by the Maryland Psychological Association. Dr. Pfeiffer serves as a consultant to a variety of school districts and is a popular presenter at state and national conferences. He's also gonna be in Arizona next uh, in November, so I'm excited to see him there. Uh, he has authored two tests on diagnosing learning disabilities in children, the FAR and FAM, both published by PAR. And I'm excited to talk to you about the upcoming um, release of the FAR, um, those names, that's just funny. Um, so welcome, Dr. Pfeiffer. I'm so happy um, to be part of this tonight. Well, thanks, Sue, and thanks, Rachel, and thanks, Eric. And thanks everybody out there in podcast land and everyone who might be watching on YouTube. My pleasure to be here this evening and looking forward to our conversation. So Dr. Pfeiffer, I just in hearing you present before and in listening to um, a podcast that you did not too long ago with the testing psychologist, I know that you took a non-traditional route to kind of get where you are um, with the neuropsychology background that you have. So I, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your interest and your journey in the area of neuropsychology and how did that evolve um, from your school psych training? Well, the number of neuropsychology courses I had in my school psych training came to about, um, about zero. <laughs> so I was trained initially as uh, at, at, at an EDS level in school psychology and, and came out in the field like everybody else and, and worked in the schools and um, really, you know, the first few years, just the machine, just testing as many kids as you possibly can, writing as many reports, just doing everything you can to stay above water, test, write reports, go to a meeting, repeat, repeat, repeat. That was me. That was my world. And after a couple of years, uh, it dawned on me, not only was I beginning to burn out already, I didn't think I was helping children in the manner that I wanted to help children by saying Billy's full-scale IQ was a 96. Any other questions? All oh, right, we have another meeting to go to. I just didn't see how that translated into meaningful goals and objectives. Um, but it, uh, to make a long story short, I, it, it was a particular student that I worked with my, my first or second year as a school psychologist who actually had an IQ. He, I was doing a reevaluation student who was extremely cognitively impaired. Um, many of you heard the story about Jason with an IQ of 36, yet I gave him an academic achievement uh, test in reading and he scored 118. So I had a choice. Do I go to, uh, to that school meeting and say, Jason is actually overachieving in reading, congratulations, and think that these scores make any you know, meaningful sense or maybe, just maybe, do I try to interpret scores from a different paradigm or perspective? And it, when I started looking at things from that lens of a neuropsych brain behavioral lens and not just a full-scale IQ prism that has lots of blinders on, things started to make sense to me. 
Um, I understood Jason. I understood that there's really not much of a relationship between IQ and decoding. I understood hyperlexia. I understood where reading, at least the decoding end of reading was in the brain and how this could be remotely possible. That you could be awesome on one skill. We might even say you have a savant in that skill, um, but so limited elsewhere. And the more I familiarized myself with the brain, and I'll be honest, I was always interested. I'd always read on my own. The better I felt I could do my job both from an assessment end, but more importantly, to explain learning to teachers and parents in a manner that wasn't full of psychobabble and it wasn't full of all these fancy brain terms, but to really sit and explain learning and more than anything inform interventions. So after a couple of years in the field, I enrolled in a neuropsych training program. And then um, after that program, I went back for my doctorate in a program that was a bit of a hybrid school psych and neuropsych. And as part of that doctor program, I had an opportunity uh, to do my doctoral internship at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, had experience with just phenomenal researchers, fMRI studies, um, and it, it dawned on me at, at, at working at the NIH, these are brilliant cognitive neuropsychologists doing incredible work and writing that work up into journals that nobody will ever read. And it dawned on me, I need to be a bridge. I need to be a bridge to echo and amplify what's going on in the world of neuroscience with the world of education. And um, I think all of those things influenced my journey where I've dedicated my career to really being that bridge of trying to explain and trying to sort of um, push neuropsychology, preach the gospel of neuropsychology about, believe it or not, this really, really helps us understand learning and informing intervention decision-making. That's my long-winded journey. Thank you. That's good. Um, oh, go ahead, Rachel. I was gonna say, um, cause I'm, I've been looking at some comments to you know, try and try our little projecting feature, but I know that Corey, let's see if this works. So Corey said that, you know, was just excited to be watching it tonight because, you know, people cite you and, and reference you in dissertations and things. So it's, uh, it's just very, you know, we're just happy to have you. Everyone's kind of excited, <laughs> but sorry to interrupt you, Eric, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I had, uh, there we go. I love the uh, <laughs> the ability to flash um, questions on the screen. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, uh, you went through Indiana University of Pennsylvania's program, and right. um, my graduate program at Bucknell University was um, sort of linking us to that program. I didn't end up going, um, but I, I thought it was fascinating that there was a neuropsych lab and that there was uh, the ability for school psychologists to have better neuropsych connections? You know, timing is everything, Eric. And when I w uh, attracted me to that program, obviously uh, where I live, um, still a few hours from my house, but this was doable um, uh, for me. But uh, also, and he's no longer there, he's since retired. I had an opportunity to study with Gramal Rattan, who ran the, um, the neuropsych track of that program. Uh, Joe Kovaleski had just come in to really uh, uh, give that program a shot in the arm from an RTI perspective. That's when RTI was really coming on board. I didn't know much about it at the time. I really thought I got the best of both worlds. Um, a lot of programs, especially at the graduate level, um, you know, are, are gonna focus either on the R RTI stuff or, or maybe just sort of the cognitive, and perhaps you do have a neuro piece that goes along with that cognitive uh, uh, part. 
I really felt I had a nice balanced uh, uh, approach and I guess timing is everything because since Grimal has retired, I don't think that neuropiece is still be interest. Okay. Wow. We have a great question. Um, a couple of good comments. One is that um, Chelsea says it remind the approach reminds her of the DSM changing criteria that the shift in SLD from assess to diagnose um, is now assess and intervene, which definitely is important. And then the questions that have arisen, um, oh, you've got it, uh, is the only way to identify and diagnose SLD through neuropsych testing, that some people have that as their- Absolutely not. Um, <clears throat> SLD, you know, when I got into this field, gosh, I have to date myself here, Eric, 25 years ago, 1993, my 94 year was my first year out of school. You got me. Now you know how old I am. Um, <laughs> I'm right there with you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> what was, so in the mid 90s, what was the number one question in this field? What's a learning disability and how do we assess for one? Mm -hmm. Now here we are in 2019 and I'm still getting what's a learning disability and how do we assess for one? And the fact of the matter is there are other things we assess for as school psychologists. What about the other categories? Intellectual disability, serious emotional disturbed, autism. But it seems like the sexy subject is SLD and we find ourselves constantly talking about it. And uh, you know, the, the, the field has moved away from a discrepancy model, yet I think a lot of people are still using um, uh, discrepancy. And, and, and I don't think you ignore large discrepancies in scores. You just don't jump to the knee-jerk reaction. <clears throat> must be because of a learning disability. There can be a thousand reasons for the discrepancy, but to answer her question, you do not need to be a neuropsychologist to identify SLD. In fact, one of the main criteria that I really wanted with the FAR test that was initially set up to diagnose developmental dyslexia in children is that it be a qualification B instrument. And a qualification B instruments, that means just about anybody in school can use it. It's not just for a psychologist, not just for a nurse. Um, this is something that teachers can use. Now, if you're using it as a teacher, we hope you're using this in conjunction with your entire assessment team and not flying off solo off the handle there, but it's for anybody. And I think, um, I think the key with SLD is just more understanding, uh, understanding reading, not necessarily being a neuropsychologist. That's a great, a great response. And I think your, I, I was mentioning to Dr. Pfeiffer just prior to us going live was that he had this wonderful PDF going around that uh, the internet, I don't know, eight, nine years ago where people were taking the neuropsychological approach to reading assessment and, um, and sharing it. And it opened my eyes, honestly, to the national reading panel and the five areas of of reading development and reading skill. And it, I don't believe that I was really, that I'd really paid attention to that prior. And um, just trying to understand better when I'm assessing a kid, is there phonological core deficits? Does a child have a problem with fluency? And, and, and it just really helped me understand the reading process a lot better and looking at what I was assessing and the skill that the child might need for intervention. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, and I'm glad it's helpful. And, and what I try to share with our field is just things that help me. It's what's helped me. Eric, back in the 90s, I thought the end point, the question is, where is your end point when you assess mm -hmm. a child? I thought my end point was full scale IQ. At the end of the day, Bobby's full scale score is 88. Do we have any questions? I thought that was the end point. And then I realized, no, 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 the end point really needs to be helping my team identify whether they qualify for services. Well, then I recognize, but what qualifies for services in my district is not the same as Rachel over there in Anne Arundel County or Sue out there in Chandler, Arizona. Every district has different criteria. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that whether someone qualifies or not at this point in time is still a bit of a political decision, more so than a scientific one. So now maybe I'm a little late to the party, but where I'm at with my thinking is what really matters with our assessments the best informed intervention decision making. And if we can do that by doing specificity and diagnostics, such as Eric, you going and drilling down to not just a learning disability, not just a learning disability in reading, but a learning disability in reading based on poor phonics skills or orthographic skills or working memory skills or whatever it might be, when you can get that specific, then we can get into specificity of intervention. Mm -hmm. That's where I am now. Um, a good report to me is simply this, the one that best informs interventions. And if those interventions are going to be served in gen ed, special ed, reading specialist, however you want to deliver them, it's on you. Just deliver them and help children. Mm. You know, your story remind me a little bit of when we talked with Dr. Kilpatrick, who, you know, had was a, a practicing school psychologist and then kind of got more of this interest and this passion for reading and then kind of dove into it, just like you did with with much of the neuro stuff and also his his feeling on, uh, yeah, intervention being more important and, and what, you know, figuring out what's where things are going wrong, where things are running off the rails that, you know, to to focus and intervene. So. That's pretty cool. I, I just to put a quick shout out. David Kilpatrick has a wonderful book out there that on the essential series, the essentials for, mm -hmm. for reading. Nice resource. Yeah, I've read that. It's it's a good one for sure. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was also wondering. So we have had some guests on that that kind of function under that. You know, the scatter doesn't matter. I know that you you want to look beyond the uh, the full scale IQ. So I have to ask because we have had people on here who say that you know the scatter the scatter doesn't matter. I think a lot of our viewers maybe who have um, seen Dr. McGill or Dr. Canave. Um, and so, what are your thoughts? I, I think I have an idea of, of <laughs> where all your thoughts are. But do you want to chime in on that? <laughs> Well, do you want to expound on scatter doesn't matter? What does that phrase mean to you? And then I'll respond. Yeah. So, um, and I think it was Dr. Farmer that came up with the with the catchy um, title there. But basically, that there isn't enough. the The lower index scores don't have enough. Um, the, the things are better predicted through the full scale IQ and that the reliability and the validity of the lower index scores might be not enough to make either diagnostic decisions or to help and inform intervention so that when you're looking at a cognitive profile, that that uh, school of thought would be to, to look at the full scale IQ and looking below the full scale IQ to the index or the subtests that you it's kind of a free for all. I, I know I didn't explain that. As, as no, I, no. I just hadn't heard the phrase scatter doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> 
the question really comes down to what is the relationship between IQ and the academic skill that you have in question? Mm -hmm. That's what the question comes to. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I talk about is, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, this started with an awesome paper that Siegel wrote 25 years ago, Keith Stanovich just talked about, um, Sally Shaywitz has talked about, Bennett Shaywitz has talked about. Fact of the matter is there's not much of a relationship between IQ and decoding skills. So when you give an IQ test, we'll use the Wexler, not so much the scatter doesn't matter. It's I could care less what half those scores even say. All I want with my IQ score is to know, does this kid have adequate reasoning skills, adequate ability? I didn't say average. I said adequate. There are people who conflate the two. Oh, your IQ is 88. You couldn't possibly have a rating disability. Really? 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 Um, Decoding and IQ, not much of a relationship. Now, you want to have a conversation between comprehension and IQ, pull up and have a seat. But it really comes down to what is the relationship between IQ and that particular academic skill you're, you're, you're interested in. Um, if they're very, very low, you know, I'm, I'm barely busting 70 on most of the index scores. I'm thinking maybe an intellectual disability. But if, you know, there's a lot of, moving parts in the equation. And there's a lot of things that we know impact IQ, such as socioeconomic status, such as culture. Uh, I spent the first six years of my career in rural West Virginia. Guess what? Average score wasn't 100 where I was. You know, mm -hmm. you have to take all of these things into consideration. I've always felt that diagnosis and psychology is part art and part science. I'd never, never, like computer programs where you put in data and it spits it out and tells you what the kid is because computers are dumb when it comes to psychology. They don't know the teacher. They don't know the curriculum. They don't know um, what this child has had in the, in the past in terms of interventions. Um, they don't know the community. They don't know that culture, but they do know whatever it is you tell them. One of my, pet peeves with school psychologists. And one of the things I really talk about in my presentations, don't be afraid of your clinical judgment because you know what? It's good. It's real good. I'm not saying you ignore scores. I'm saying you balance them with clinical judgment. You know, it, it, it probably Eric heard me say this in our neuropsych training program. Uh, some of my students would say, well, Billy's got eight. <laughs> Honors. Connor said so. Connor doesn't talk, okay? These scales, the bass doesn't talk. No vocal cord here. Um, gives you information. Mm -hmm. I want the clinician to make these decisions. I don't want a test or any singular instrument or a particular computer program. That's not to me psychology. That's, that's where I come from. So I don't know if I even answered your scatter doesn't matter question. It's just a different perspective to look at. No, I like it. And then Chelsea was chiming in and um, mentioned that that can't be, a, feels that scatter doesn't invalidate the full scale IQ that some people think that, okay, you, you toss it out. It's not, it's not useful. Um, but yeah, I like what you're saying about um, your perspective and, and considering everything. I mean, it's not just about test scores. Like you said, it's not just about, you know, symptom counts on the Connors. It's, it's, global, it's environmental, it's everything. Well, to take it a step further, and I guarantee 90% of your audience, in fact, you probably will not agree with my, the following statement, um, but this is what it reminded me of. 
for the most part, a GAI index on an IQ test, I think for me, is a complete waste of time. What is a GAI index? You have too much scatter. So you know what we're going to do? The lower part of the scatter, we're going to toss it the trash can. It doesn't exist. So we're going to arrive at a more firmer and, and uh, uh, more stronger conclusion with less data. That's what a GAI index is to me. And for the most part, that doesn't work, doesn't help me. I need to know all of the scores and, and, and scatter is important. And, and if you do have low scores, is this an outliner? Uh, when Eric and I are doing a neuropsych eval and, and we're following, let's say, a Dan Miller model of, of school neuropsych assessment, Eric, you know, you might, you might lob 75 uh, different subtests at a kid. They're allowed to screw up on a couple. It's called error. So you need to know the scatter. Is this, is this a bias? Is this an outlier? Or is this a true pattern? That's where the clinician comes in. That's a good point. And uh, I don't know where I got this term from, but years ago in a training, uh, the term riot, records, interview, observation, and testing. And, you know, just getting multiple sources of data, you know, and, and Dan certainly emphasizes that good social history and getting, you know, solid interviews and, um, you know, that's all important. Well, uh, a very, very quick story. So I work, I'm very good friends and I work with a clinical psychologist, Scott Wingett. Scott, I don't know if you're hearing this today, but I just mentioned your name. Scott and I go out to lunch every Monday. Now he's a clinical psychologist. And here's our lunchtime conversation. Steve, um, or I'll start out. Scott, you know what the problem is with school psychs? And I'll say what? I said, just what I mentioned before. They're slave to the score. They're ADHD because the Connor said so. They're ADHD, they're anxiety because the BAS said, whatever the score says, that's what you want. And he'll look at me and say, Steve, you know what the problem is with clinical psychs? I say, what's that? Don't give a damn about what the score is. You're ADHD because I said so because I'm the clinical psychologist. And it seems to me that, that the best clinicians are the ones that can balance quantitative knowledge, qualitative mm. instincts, and bring those together. I like that. Yeah. That's awesome. That's good. That's good. We we had a question, um, okay. and I, I think it was probably um, meant in a funny way. But how can you help? How can you help my uh, make my district make a case to purchase tax? <laughs> <laughs> the far, the fam. <laughs> Any there it is uh, from Chelsea. Yes. And shout well, out Chelsea, I, I, I can't I can't influence your district to buy the fall because we're still working on the Instagram. Um, I'm hearing spring 2020 as a release date um, and we are working very hard on it. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, wow, that's such a self-serving question for me to answer. <laughs> but, uh, I do. Let's just say I do a lot of presentations to school districts, not about the tests. I do them about neuropsychology and reading or neuropsychology and math or neuropsychology and writing and spelling, neuropsychology and emotional disorders, neuropsychology and stress, take your pick. Um, but sometimes just doing a presentation on those topics from this brain-based educational perspective. Now the word um, neuropsychology is intimidating a lot of people. Um, so what I say is, you know, we might have one step in the world of brain science and look at areas of the brain and different neural circuits, but believe me, 
the other foot is going to be in your classroom because the whole point is to bridge this into meaningful intervention. So usually those workshops, the information sells itself. Okay. And we know that you you do a lot of workshops. I mean, you were saying, I think it was before we went on air, but that you do like 55 a year or something, because I know that you're you're going to be seeing Sue in Arizona. You're going to be, I'm going to be seeing you in November as well. So you'll be in Arizona and Maryland presenting um, NIASP. So I think that that's a great way to, you know, kind of get districts um, aware and, and for school psychs to, you know, get the assessments that they want, like the FAR or the FAM is, you know, hey, district, you know, he's over here presenting, let's let's all go, let's go for a visit. Yeah, it is a lot of traveling when I think about it, so I don't think about it, but um, I very much enjoy it, <coughs> excuse me. And one of the advantages about traveling so much in the States as well as Canada, and by the way, this summer, if anybody who hasn't done this, I did something for the first time this summer, I actually spoke at the International School Psych Association, and that was held in Basel, Switzerland, at the University of Basel. Wow. And that was truly phenomenal. And what makes all of this so phenomenal is to meet and connect with people like Sue out there in Arizona, or to go to California, which I leave uh, Tuesday of this upcoming week, or to go to Canada, or even my first time overseas. And to meet psychologists from all over North America, or meet psychologists in Europe, First of all, it's a very uh, empowering feeling. And second mm -hmm. of all, you recognize that no one's got this completely figured out, that everybody's still struggling with some of these essential questions, and that we all have a little bit different conceptualization of learning. For example, when I talk about reading, I talk about four subtypes or kinds of reading disorder. Uh, David Kilpatrick probably talks about two or three. It doesn't make one of us right or one of us wrong. It has to do with different ways that we conceptualize information. Um, and, and that's important and it's powerful. And I think people need to hear different voices in the field because I think it'll help you conceptualize that information the way that make best makes sense with your work, with your background, because it's not me, it's gonna be you sitting in that meeting, in that conference room, building principles, with um, special teachers, gen ed teachers, with the parent, the way he's put next to the school psychology, uh, psychologist. And you've got to explain learning and you're gonna do it in the way that hopefully makes sense to you. So I think, I think it's good to be out there. Uh, it's good to meet people. It's good for folks to, to hear uh, another voice in the field, but mm. please know that everybody is kind of in the same boat, kind of struggling to to put this stuff together. That's a good point. And when we go from state to state, you you sort of said this earlier, maybe from school district to school district, one child qualifies under certain criteria and then goes to another state or another district and doesn't. And right. so yeah, we have to we have to figure out what this looks like given <laughs> given our district as well or our state parameters and guidelines as well, especially the SLD. Um, piece. That's the loosest piece, isn't it? Um, yeah. It seems like intellectual disability, well, that tends to be pretty much the same everywhere, right? You know, you just look for that magic 70 score and whether you're uh, below that or not. But SLD is definitely the slippery one. Yeah. So um, we have, uh, you and I were talking just a little bit about the um, writing test. So, and um, not necessarily to give the, the test a plug, but uh, we have 
very few standardized writing assessments. Um, you know, we were joking that the WJ doesn't seem to do enough and then it takes forever to score the Wyatt. And um, so much. maybe tell us a little about what we might expect, uh, what you can tell us at this point, perhaps from the FAW. Sure. The muffle is still a little bit on from my publisher, um, but I will say that we're making great progress on what the test is out of norming. Manual writing. Generally, the manual writing is the final step. It'll go then back through an editing process, and we're hoping um, probably spring, late spring of 2020, the test will be used. The goal of the FAB and the FAR, and of course the FAM, all of those tests, is to usher into our field a new genre of testing, and that is a diagnostic achievement test. We have lots of traditional achievement tests. You mentioned two very, very good ones, the Woodcock Johnson, the Wyatt, and my personal favorite happens to be the KTEA. I think that's an excellent uh, achievement test. But what do traditional achievement tests do? They tell us where a student is functioning. Um, you know, and we assign a standard score value, a percentile rank. Maybe, maybe you want to do a grade equivalent. That's a little slippery of a stat. Mm-hmm. But we assign this numerically that at the end of the day, traditional achievement testing validates what the teacher already knows. They've got mm-hmm. tons of information, whether it's you know curriculum-based uh, measurement data, running records, student portfolio. They already know where they are. They want to know why. Now, why do we do traditional-based achievement testing? Because we need a singular score to compare to a singular IQ value to determine discrepancies. That's driven our field. I think the future is what I see is more districts going to a processing strengths and weaknesses model. So what we've done with the FAR, the FAM, and the FAW, a diagnostic achievement test, is not so much to tell you where you are in these skills, but to tell you why you're there. What are the fundamental processes? We built the processing right into the test. We built phonology, orthography, morphology, working memory, executive functioning into the FAR. So I think this follows on the heels of two great pioneers in our field. And I'm going to give a shout out to Joseph Torgerson and the CTOP and Virginia Berninger on the PAL-2. I think both of those tests were unique and they were the first diagnostic achievement test trying to embed processing in a particular skill. They opened the door for me to walk into. So what you're going to see with the FAW is you're going to see some subtests that are going to look on the correct side of writing, and you're going to see some subtests that look more on the cognitive linguistic side of writing. Read that into a lot of executive functioning. You know, do you struggle in writing because of poor planning, organization, sequencing skills, things of that nature? And you're also going to see a lot of, uh, on the FAW, as we know with dyslexia, and one of the things I stress with dyslexia is that it doesn't just impact reading, it impacts other academic subjects. If you have a fourth grader reading on a second grade level, guess what, their writing is not on a fourth grade, it's right down on the second grade level too. Shared brain regions under uh, serving similar skills. So you're gonna have something on the fall where we're gonna look at how dyslexia impacts the writing process and chance to have on our spelling. Good. So stay tuned. <laughs> we had a question uh, about, do you know estimated administration time at this point yet? Yeah. I know exactly the administration time. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so right now there will be an extended battery, a core battery, and there will be a screener test. Um, I promise, I know guys, the FAR came out a little lengthy. I know that. Uh, right now the core battery is looking at 44 minutes. Obviously the screener is going to be less, uh, far less time. Extended battery, maybe eight to 10 minutes longer. Wow. One of the things that I really like about all um, well, the FAR and the FAM so far, and hopefully about the FAR, is that it's tied so closely to interventions that you have, you know, um, a lot of different um, interventions that you can recommend, both, you know, purchasable interventions and then other types of interventions. And I found that extremely helpful just in kind of tying that whole package together. You've got the teacher input, you've got what you, uh, the information you've gotten from the KTEA, you get the information from the FAR. When it all comes together, it's just like, ah. And then when you can get those interventions in as well that specifically address what you need to do, it's just, I feel like um, the rock star at the meeting because uh, you know you can tie everything together. You should ask Sue to make that sound again. That was great. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Uh, that was the whole intent. Um, with the FAR, we do have the interpretive report writer the FAM interpretive report, report writer, we're waiting for that to be released. It, it will be shortly by par. I just think as a school psychologist in the 21st century, in 2019, going into 2020, it is about taking things to the finish line. And the mm. finish line is interventions. So in the interpretive report writer, it's going to interpret your scores and write a, you know, write a report. Um, don't, you know, again, it only knows the information you put in might glean some good information from that interpretive report. It's not the gospel. It's not as smart as you. You know the you know the child. But what is in those interpretive report writers, for example, the FAR, we probably looked at 75 different reading programs just for the FAR. Um, we looked at a ton of stuff for the FAM in terms of not just math programs, but websites and apps and targeted strategies for teachers and parents. You're going to get all that in the report writer. We're going to do the same with the FAW. And my hope is on that interpretive report writer, just go to the last page or two or three, and that's where all the interventions are. Do what you do, Sue. Cut, paste, include them with the other testing that you've done. And I want you to be at the rock star at the meeting. I want your team to say, man, that Sue was killer today. Um, she really, really helped this child. Nothing would, would please me more. That's the whole point of all of these assessments. And you know, going back a little bit to the definition of SLD and how it's so different from school to school, what I really like is even if a child does not qualify for special education, you have all of this information to give right. to a general education teacher about how they can pinpoint their interventions if a child is going to continue in general education. So it's not just a gateway to get this special stuff through special education, but it's really knowing more about the child and meeting their needs through whatever avenue we have to we have to do that. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. Um, when I became a school psychologist, like I'm sure Rachel and Eric, as well, I don't remember signing the line that said I only work with special ed kids. That's it. Mm. I think we committed to working with children, and it is very incumbent that if they happen to not qualify, we have a plan for it. And we have some intervention. Somebody else might have to provide those interventions, mm -hmm. but I think that's really, really important. It's about helping all kids. 
Now, question, when you uh, were working on the writing, was that more difficult? I know that there seems to be a lot more one research, especially in the reading, there's a, a you know, um, and also interventions out there, at least in my county, you know, we have several reading interventions. We really have <laughs> not, not much for writing. So is that more difficult to, to track things down and to synthesize that research and consider that or? Um, there's stuff out there for writing and for math. Is there? Is it as robust? Is it as sexy a subject as reading? No, it's not. Um, I can say going into that project, I was definitely a bit intimidated, but I will also say coming now out of that project, of the three major tests that I've done, nothing came together more efficiently or more easily than the writing test. Maybe wow. some of that is just me because I've been through this process a couple of times. I really wish all school psychologists could have a chance to see what goes into the test development process. I'm like a kid in a candy store because I'm one of the I still test kids. I work with kids. And someone comes up to me and says, okay, you don't like these tests? You do one. Let's see if you can do it better. You know, how often do you get that opportunity? So going into that writing test, I was definitely intimidated, but I think just having gone through that process a couple of times, I'm super excited about how it looks. And as far as the interventions go, if you're looking for writing programs, you're right. There's not as many as reading programs. In fact, handwriting in our in our written language book, um, the Neuropsychic Written Language Book, we, we reviewed maybe eight different handwriting programs and the research was awful. Handwriting without tears, best one out there. Everything else, the research is awful. Not a lot of good writing programs out there, but what there are, are fabulous strategies. So that's what you're gonna get um, in terms of, and you know, the, you look at some of the work by Graham and Harris and, and, and their meta-analysis of the strategies that work best and really teaching kids that paragraphs flow from general to specific, teaching kids how to craft a topic sentence, teaching kids how to recognize a topic sentence, use graphic organizer. A lot of the interventions with writing has to do with that executive functioning planning organization piece. And what a lot of us think is a writing disorder or a learning disability, at the end of the day, it's more of an executive function problem. You work on the executive function, guess what? You'll get better production. So, um, Really, it did not turn out to be the super intense, difficult project I thought it would, would be going in. It actually was quite enjoyable. That's good. Well, maybe that will, you know, it, maybe it will lead to more <laughs> because it was a pleasant experience. <laughs> Bite your tongue, Eric. Um, <laughs> now it's, um, I, I'm very flattered that my name is featured on these instruments. I just wish all psychologists could see. I have a whole research team that I work with at PAR. Very, very committed, very, very talented, uh, brilliant people. They make me look good. <clears throat> and uh, it, it is truly a team. And um, we work together quite well. And I, I know that when I go into things, any test development project, I've got 100 ideas. And if you come back and Sue says 99 out of 100 are the worst thing I've ever heard in my life, but I like the one, I'm happy. That's fine with me. All at the end of the day, we're just trying to get a good test. And uh, so I, I approach it, I try to in the most egoless way possible. Some people might disagree with that, but uh, whatever works, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine with it. That's great. You know, I could talk about the FAR and the, you know, 
academic instruments all night long, but I really want to uh, talk a little bit about your new work with stress and trauma. Maybe you could tease me a little bit about what you're gonna be talking about in um, Arizona in a couple of months, because I'm really interested. I think this is a huge topic in our field these days, you know, and we've got so many things in the national news about these kids who are going through traumatic experiences, whether they're school shootings right. or the kids who are being held, you know, without their parents. I'd love to hear um, your thoughts about this and, and, and what you're working on in this, in this area. Well, I'll backtrack to last year, and we were all talking before the podcast, and I think one thing we, are, we all have in common, besides being a school psychologist, is we're all parents. Mm -hmm. And I start my day off like all of you. <clears throat> I drop my two girls off at school. And I don't know why schools always do the single file line that backs up forever, but I'm always sitting in the single file line. Finally get to the front, <clears throat> kids hop out of the car, Bye, honey. Have a good day. Love you. See you tonight. And as you pull away, I think every parent has the same thought. I hope so. Mm. And right after the Parkland shooting, there was something about that shooting, which was February 14th, 2018, that resonated with this country. And you saw a lot of marches emerge, including March for Our Lives, which occurred in my hometown of Washington, DC, as well as many towns across the United States, my kids asked us, can we go to March for Our Lives? Now my wife and I, we've, we've never been to a political rally in our lives. We still haven't. It wasn't a political rally. It was such an amazing experience, nearly a million families just like us lining Pennsylvania Avenue in DC, hearing these eloquent speeches from these kids um, from Marjorie Stoneman High School in Florida, I was so incredibly moved by that experience that, you know, I, 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 I don't sing, I don't dance, my art is my writing. And it started me to think, what's it like to learn under these circumstances today? When we readily have active shooting drills, when we know every possible horrific event that might happen in a school in an instant through social media. What's it like to learn in that? But it wasn't like that when I was in school. We had a fire <laughs> as part of this process. And I don't know, I guess, Sue, once I get curious about something and passionate about something, it gets a little dangerous and um, started researching it and um, said, this is what I want to start writing about. So our new book, The Neuropsychology of Stress and, and uh, Trauma, How to Develop a Trauma-Informed School will be released Next week, it'll be out of printing next week. And that has been the big project. And so I took it from the standpoint and also have a presentation that I'll be doing at NASP this year that accompanies that. I'll be doing it for you guys in Arizona as well on the neuropsychology of stress and trauma. You know, it covers a lot, but the angle that I'm gonna take is how does trauma impact the brain? You know, stress and trauma produces cortisol in the brain. How does cortisol impact you know, impact certain brain structures, and more importantly, impact learning. And as a psychologist, what are the types of instruments that I should be using? Not so much to determine whether trauma has occurred, more so to determine the manifestations of that trauma in a school-based situation. How does that impact memory, learning, executive functioning, fatigue, reading, writing? What sorts of 504 accommodations schools need to be put in place. 
how to develop a trauma-informed school is a big part of that presentation because at the end of the day, schools are not a rehabilitation institution. So the key word here is trauma-informed. What do schools need to know when we have a student? And let's talk about what the biggest source of trauma is. Poverty. Mm-hmm. Poverty, number one. What do we need to be aware of? How does this impact that student's learning? That's sort of a long-winded answer of how I got interested in this, why I'm interested in, and 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 what's set to come with respect to uh, both the book and the presentation. Hmm. I think that's good. I I think you know for sort of mantra of intervention, you know that that you've used in your approaches with reading, writing, math, and assessment. Um, that's you know, applying that same to trauma, you know, being trauma informed <coughs> and providing support. You know, we, we all sort of know the ACEs study. We all have read sure. some of the books and seen resilience and those kinds of things, but now what? So um, I think it will be beneficial to, um, you know, to look at, into this and see how we can do more. Once we have the information, where do we take it from there? Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of just simple recommendations for schools. Some of them not simple, but it's not asking schools to provide psychotherapy. I, I don't. My opinion, you know, that's really difficult to do in schools. We have a mental health shortage anyway. A lot of people don't have access outside the school to mental health services. But what are some things that we can do in the school? Here's a very very simple five or four suggestion. All of us in reports have said Billy needs preferential seating in class, right? Um, that's one of my stellar recommendations back from the old days. What the hell does that mean, preferential seating in class? So if I'm ADHD, preferential seating means not by a door, not by a window, not by another student. Those are all really distracting. It probably means right by the teacher. What does preferential seating mean for someone? He's been exposed to trauma. Mm. It could mean, not always, I need to sit right by that door. I need to know there's an escape route right here. This is the only spot in the classroom I feel safe. Mm. Or it might mean if I sit by the door, I'll never be paying attention to the teacher because I'm afraid who might be walking around the corner in the hallway. Um, so these things are going to mean different things to different people. And one of the, one of the takeaway points with trauma um that most people in the field readily are aware of there is no signature emotional reaction to look for. it's not uh, oh look at look at the anxiety look at the depression look at the there's nothing that will be consistent except inconsistency mm-hmm. the only signature emotional reaction we're bound to see is a change in baseline so if your baseline mm-hmm. emotional makeup might have been you're very gregarious you might become now a little more introverted or you may become even more gregarious but there will be a change from baseline emotionally in either direction no no signature emotional reaction that's a really good point it seems so hard yeah to to kind of program for to you know i mean yeah when it's different in everybody it's it's yeah so i'm gonna have to get your book <laughs> to 
But, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we're seeing schools already doing. Um, yes, it's different, but what's a common thread? We need to feel safe. Mm. We need to establish trust. We need to learn how to self-calm. And you see this, and maybe with your own kids, you've been seeing this in their schools, where mindfulness has really taken off. Um, I have my daughter's middle school. Her principal would start every morning off with, the morning announcements, and then they do a mindfulness activity for the whole school, um, just to develop some some focus, some self calm, and to learn how to activate. We talk a lot about activating the parasympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. because when we've been traumatized, the sympathetic nervous system, our biology is going crazy, and we don't have conscious control over that. And and so, you know, that in and of itself is fearful when we feel like. We don't have that control over, over what our bodily reactions are doing. And mindfulness is a way to help that. I'm seeing more yoga pop up in PE classes as a way to slow it down, develop some, some self-calm, and let's go inward. Let's go inward just a little bit. Um, you know, you're seeing things like that. You're seeing cognitive behavioral intervention therapy, CBIT, being practiced by teachers. Now, all the psychs listening are now saying, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> yes, you can. The fact of the matter is a lot of folks don't have access to mental health services. Mm -hmm. And when you get at the heart of what CBIT is trying to do, it's just trying to reframe a negative situation into something more positive. Because a lot of kids are just playing that record player in their head over and over again with those ants. You know what those ants are? those automatic negative thoughts. Yes. I don't belong here. Nobody likes me. I don't have any friends. I don't like how my body looks. We play those messages constantly. You can call it whatever you want, but when we work with children and try to get them to replay a different message, try to establish trust, try to say you're safe here, you belong. This is where, you know, these are, these are just so important because I think schools are starting to recognize that when kids are in an emotional readiness position to learn, they learn best. Mm. And all of this ties in to better academic performance. And I think in part, that's why a lot of schools are buying in. That makes good sense. I know we're, we did a little call on Facebook for on YouTube for last minute questions, because I know we're, we're winding down here. Um, Rachel, did you want to post Chelsea's question? She she noted that it's not really related to um, to trauma, but ah, there we go. <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, as far as the screening tools, the universal can they be used as universal screeners? Say like three times a year, or however often. Yeah. So um, so for all of the screeners now again, if you're looking for a universal screener, Chelsea, that has to be group administered. On the FAR, the FAM, and the FA, it's all going to be individually administered. But there's something built into all of those instruments called the Reliable Change Index. So the screener itself for all of those instruments runs about 15 minutes or so, you know, give or take five minutes depending on the student. What's the Reliable Change Index? Well, let's say you test a student October 1st, and um, let's say you only do the screener, three subtests. And Based on how they do, you're going to give them some sort of reading intervention. And two months has now gone by. It's now December 1st. 
How are we doing? Is that helping? Uh, you can re if you, you have to wait a minimum of 30 days, but you can readminister these these tests every 30 days, no sooner than that. And you're going to get a new score because whenever you test a kid twice, you get two different scores. Here's what you want on the reliable change index. The new score you're going to compare to the old score. And let's say the new score is a 93 and the old score was an 86. That student has improved seven points. Is that because they made growth in the skill? Or is that just a statistical manifestation of what happens when you test a kid twice with a standard error measure of plus or minus five or whatever? Reliable change index will say to what extent you can reliably say that change in score is due to growth in skill. That's a cool feature that PARB put in all of these tests that you can use throughout the year. All right, I think we're wrapping up, but thank you so, so much for coming. I think yeah. it's really super informative and just, just fun to get to, to, to I'm always excited when we, we have these awesome credentialed, amazing guests on that we just get to kind of suck up your information. So thank you for that. Um, Thanks for having me. Where did the hour go? I think I talked my way through the whole thing. <laughs> that was great. That's what we wanted. It worked. It worked. I want to remind everybody, so we'll be back on October 6th, and we're going to have um, – Mr. Kyle, uh, Carl Corbin, who is a school psychologist and also a special education lawyer. So um, what I'm gonna be doing, cause he gave us like a whole list of topics that he could talk on. And I was like, wow, that's a lot. So I'm gonna be putting out, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm gonna be putting out a poll so that maybe we can get some feedback from viewers so we could narrow down some of his many topics and figure out what is most relevant to us. And we'll let him know. And then he's he's gonna come and, and I hope, I think really understand kind of the intersection between law and uh, school psychology. So that'll be a lot of fun. So October 6th. Um, all right, but thank you again, Dr. Pfeiffer. Yeah, and thank you, Dr. My pleasure. Yeah, thank Great you. Bye, guys. <laughs>